Hi, my name's Rowan. Welcome to Uni Church. Sorry that was so loud and your voice is now et- my voice is now etched in your eardrums. Um, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here. It's great to come together. Uh, I was really excited tonight as I walked in to think, how great is it to come together as God's people? To listen to what God has to say, not some punk up the front, but open up his word and listen to what he has to say in that. Uh, so why don't we pray together that God would help us now to understand what he has for us and that his spirit might shape us tonight to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe. We've come here tonight from all different sorts of places, with all sorts of things going on in our worlds, in our minds, and in our lives. But we come here tonight, Lord, to open your word together, not just on our own, but as your people. And we pray that tonight, that as we listen to what we have just had read, as we understand what you are saying to us through Paul to Timothy, and apply it to us today. We ask that your spirit would shape and mold us. That he would comfort us and provoke us. That we might walk away having heard tonight, not just words, but having heard you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. One of the great joys of our family over the last year, year and a bit has been watching our kids get their own pet. I don't know if you've ever had your own pet. Um, Nathaniel, about a year and a bit ago for his ninth birthday, really wanted to get a rabbit. So off we went, uh, took him out to this kind of rabbit breeder in Massey Way. Apparently there's lots of rabbits out there. And, and these, these people, they kind of had this rabbit. Nathaniel chose this rabbit, took him home in the car, so proud. Uh, he decided to call him Leo. Uh, I'm like, why would you call a rabbit Leo? Well, that's a lion's name. Everyone knows he's got Leo the lion, the king of the jungle, and la 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 You know that song? No. Yeah, okay, I'm not even going to go there either. Um, so, so we're in the car, I'm like, why did you call him Leo? And he's like, well, it's, it's short for Leonathan. I'm like, who calls their, their rabbit Leonathan? And he's like, well, that's Nathaniel backwards. I'm like, what? You get it? Right, Nathaniel Leonathan. And he's kind of like, that's so nice. This joy has been watching Nathaniel love his rabbit. Right, take responsibility for this rabbit and share him with our family. Um, Nathaniel toilet trained Leo. I don't know, you could do that with rabbits, but they actually just go to the toilet on, like a, on a litter tray. So you can have them inside, they can hop around. And the boys taught him card tricks. So you can hold out three cards and he'll come and pick a card and flick it out with his kind of head as if he knows what he's doing. He's absolutely got no idea, but it looks really cool. Right, the kids have spent a good amount of time investing into this rabbit. It's been a great joy for our family until I woke up on Thursday morning. And Nathaniel went to feed Leo, and Leo was gone. What had happened was, um, the girls had been playing with him with a friend over. They got him out of the bottom part of the cage. They'd shut the bottom part of the cage, but not locked it. And then when Nathaniel put him back from inside at night, he just put him in the top and didn't look. And in the morning, Leo had kind of escaped. And we began a search. I'm kind of like, where is he? He can't be gone too far. Although it has been overnight, and he's a fluffy little bunny. Who knows where he is, right? So we looked around our place, our neighbor's place, the kid's started to kind of hear this tone in my voice and Sarah's voice. And we're like, he's been out since Wednesday. We kept looking. So I kind of came inside. It's nearly time to go to school. I did a quick thing on the computer and printed out some like some little flyers we could drop in our, in our neighbor's letterboxes just to say, look out for a rabbit. Nathaniel would love him back. I'm kind of like, man, what was this rabbit thinking? I mean, seriously, right? Think about it. This rabbit has got the good life. It gets its food brought to it every day. It's water topped up. It gets its kind of bedding changed and all its mess cleaned up for it. Like, that's the life, right? 
You come home and it's like, yeah, it gets out. Why would it want to go anywhere? What else could this rabbit want? And perhaps it was the scent of spring in the air or the fragrance of a, of a lady rabbit kind of drew him away or maybe it was just the idea of the open road and an adventure and he's like what is out there in the road sad news is we haven't seen leo since thursday and it got me thinking so often what happens to many of us is exactly this we get lost in life by what looks like an adventure we see something that we think we 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 want We, we get caught up in so many good things that the very one who sustains us the thing that holds us in our faith in the living Lord Jesus gets slowly left behind. As sad as it has been losing Leo, walking away from Jesus is far more serious than leaving a hutch and a little family of six. As Paul writes to Timothy in this section of this letter, this is exactly what's on his mind. Not some rabbit that were in, you know, Ephesians, uh, sorry, Ephesus and Maltus, they probably ate rabbits. What was on their mind was walking away from Jesus. And it all begins with knowing how do we stick with Jesus? How do we ensure we stay trusting Jesus to the end? That we don't walk away? Well, Paul says it begins with knowing the time. Have a look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. It's on the screen. But know this, difficult times will come in the last days. Difficult times will come in the last days. Time matters. I'm not sure if you've kind of come to grips with this concept yet. It took me a long time to understand this. See, growing up, uh, my mum is just brilliant with time. Time and date, she's all over it. She's got this, I don't know, mechanical calendar in her head that she remembers every date, every place. It's so annoying. In fact, I grew up hating it and rebelling against it. I'm a reaction against my mum's kind of ordered timeliness. When we go back to visit my parents in Australia, my mum will, will call me like three months before we go back. No kidding. This has actually happened. Three months. And say, oh, what do you want for dinner on the night that you come? Like, are you serious? I don't even know what I'm eating tonight. <laughs> time matters. Uh, getting the time wrong has disastrous and dangerous effects. Imagine turning up at the wrong time or date for your wedding. It's a bit awkward. Imagine if someone else was getting there and you're like, oh, walk down the aisle, oh, wrong guy, right? You've got to get the time right. You've got to know what time it is. Imagine uh, turning up for an exam at the wrong time. Maybe some of you have done that, been late. You know, there's not much you can do at that point if you're late for an exam. Have you, have you ever been in one of those moments where someone is telling something that they think is quite serious and you've not quite understood the time and you thought it was a joke and you just laughed really loud? They're like, no, that, that really happened. And you're like, oh, you know, it's the wrong time to laugh, Rowan. It happens to me, right? You're like, it's the wrong time to do it. Getting the time right matters. And Paul is saying to Timothy, the time is this. You are living in the last days. You are living in the last days. This idea of the last days is such an important concept for us to, to hold on to. Uh, it's kind of comes up a number of times throughout Scripture. Let me run through a couple for you on the screen. Acts 2.17 says this. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. So the last days is the time that God's spirit gets poured out. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things. So the last days is the time that the spirit gets sent out, which Acts tells us was the day of Pentecost. 
And now that God has spoken through the Son, it's the days that God has spoken finally in Jesus. And then 2 Peter 3, 3, first be aware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, living according to their own desires. Timothy is living in the last days. We are living in the last days. It's been the last days since Jesus came and died and rose again, right up until the time Jesus comes back. As you look through the scriptures, there's all sorts of evils that characterize these last days. And what we've seen throughout history is these evils burst, burst forth again and again onto the pages of history. This is not the moment. This is not the time to chase the spring air or go on adventures. This is the moment to live by the Spirit of God, trusting in God the Son who has spoken. The writer of Hebrews says this in 9.27. It is appointed for people to die once, and after this, face judgment. The last days are the days before God comes back and judges us for how we have lived. There's a sobering thought to this time. This is real. This is not a dress rehearsal This is not some fun and frivolous time where we can just do whatever we want. What is happening now matters. These are the last days. And after them comes death and judgment. If you don't yet call Jesus your king, if you come along here tonight and you're checking out the things of God, you're saying, what is this Christianity all about? So glad you're here. But please hear this. The Bible claims that all of us will die. And then after that, we will face God for the way we've treated him. Christian and non-Christian alike, and none of us will be found guiltless. All of us will be found guilty. Our only hope is that Jesus has paid the price for us. Your only hope is that Jesus has died in your place and you trust him. There is no life after death for those outside of Jesus. That's the claim of the Bible. I'd love for you tonight to go away thinking through these claims and say, where am I at with Jesus? Well, Paul then goes on to list a whole bunch of evils that characterize this time. But before we get into them, it's kind of not really the happiest of passages. And before we get into them, we need to understand two things. Two things we need to guard against. You can write down one, two, under this section. Uh, the, thing, the first thing we must guard against is this. In the last days, we must not look at all the evil in the world and go, look, the church has failed. Sometimes you kind of come across people who say, look, um, you know, I look at the evil in the world and the church hasn't made much change. So stop the church. The church has failed. God's plan to save the world through his people is just not working. See, nowhere in scripture is there a promise that the holiness of the church will transform culture. Nowhere. So therefore, we can't say that the organization of church has failed. We can't give up on church. We shouldn't walk away from it disillusioned. Because God doesn't promise that to happen. God still has his plans. The second thing we need to guard against, though, is that we must also not assume that between today and Jesus' return, that God won't again bring many people in through the work of his gospel being proclaimed to trust his son. It might be between now and Jesus' return, God does plan another great revival. We shouldn't just go, oh, well, it's too late. Look at society. Stuff it. It's all downhill. We should pray. And share the news of Jesus, that he has died in our place and he has risen again and life is on offer. God doesn't promise he'll bring in many, 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 many more people right now. He doesn't promise revival. He does promise that the end picture is of every tribe and language and people and nation gathered around the throne. It's a huge picture. So don't give up hope. 
God is still working through his word. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 4. Now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. See, knowing the time, Peter says now that the end of all things is near, knowing the time helps us to know who and what we should love. Knowing our loves is extraordinarily important. The reason for the difficulty in these last days that Paul is telling Timothy here is that people don't know and love the right loves. There's a problem with their loves. Have a look at verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Stick that on your CV and see if you get a job. Right? This is not a happy picture. What we see is what makes these last days hard is people. People like you and me. People who love the wrong things or in the wrong order. And the confusing thing is, the thing that makes it so hard is it's their loves for certain things that makes them evil. Lennon and McCartney had a little band, you might have heard of them, called the Beatles. Great band. I know it's a bit before even my time. But they wrote this song, which was actually on the first live television broadcast the world has ever seen. They wrote this song for exactly this moment. 400 million people watching. Do you know what the words of the song were? Anyone know? All you need is love. That's what got broadcast. All you need is love. Love is all you you need. And that's kind of in the air of the world that we live in, isn't it? We kind of think love is what we need to be about. We should be loving others. That's a good thing to do. But love misdirected ends in catastrophe. Love misdirected ends in catastrophe. Think about the the workaholic's love for perfection or position. She works all so hard every day and every night that family don't get a look in. But there are other loves that fall away. Or, Or think about the lover whose love for anyone who is not their spouse causes them to be in all sorts of trouble. To be with someone else's spouse. To look and do things with people that they shouldn't be doing it with. Love misdirected ends in catastrophe. Paul tells us that the direction of our love matters. And then gives Timothy a list of 18 places our love should not be focused. I reckon you can kind of summarize them down to eight in general. So if you want to think through this next point, thinking about what it is of knowing our loves, you can write one to eight, one to nine actually, down the left-hand column. And you'll you'll be able to get enough space in there. All these misdirected loves seem to flow, though, from one place. The love of self. The love of self. Number one. When we remove God from his position, when we say, no offense, God, you know, I think I can run my life without you. I think I've got other priorities that you you fit in my picture, but you're not number one. We generally replace him with another person called me. We put ourselves in that position because we're choosing what is right and wrong, what is good and what isn't good. And when we do that, all these other loves start flowing from that. These vices naturally follow. 
lovers of self is how he describes these people. Listen to the other words that he uses. If you want to leave that um, long list up from verse 2 to 4, that way we can work through this the whole time. I'm going to skip around them all. There it is. Okay. Listen to the words he uses where we summarize lovers of self. To be boastful. To be proud. What is that? To be conceited in verse 4. It's to say, look at me. I love myself. I am so great. Now, we never say that, right? We never actually want to say that to others because it just feels ugly. Um, but I think we actually think about it. We, we, we want to seek our own promotion, that people can look at us. There's a word there, um, blasphemers. And usually when you think of what blasphemy is, we think, oh, blasphemy is kind of using the Lord's name in vain or, or claiming to be God. And it's kind of like that. The word literally means to defame, to denigrate, to, to demean others. And when we use God's name improperly, we defame God. We portray him as someone that he is not like that. Uh, if we claim to be God ourselves, we're defaming him. We're moving him from his, his position on the throne and putting ourselves in. It got me thinking, like, one of the things we love doing, one of the things that's so strong in our culture is this cutting down the tall poppy, right? When someone stands up and says, look, I, I think I'm the best unicycle rider in the world. My immediate reaction is like, whatever, as if you are. Like, I want to cut them down. I want to say, there's someone better than you. I don't know if you have that similar reaction, but, but I kind of want to bring them down. Now, why do we do that? Why do we want to level anyone who sticks their head above the kind of the surface? Well, my hunch is we do it so that we might fit in, so that we might be there at the, at the, at the same level as everyone else, or maybe just a little bit above. You're not that great. Perhaps this culture of cutting down the tall poppy is actually so that I might stand out. It's a lover of self. Verse 3 says it's unloving. These people are unloving. These people that cause distress and hard times in the last days, they don't have love for anyone else. They just love themselves. Augustine was one of the great church fathers who kind of had this um, great book called The Confessions, another one called The City of God. He's written lots of things that are helpful. And what he said is this, that sin, rebellion against God, flows out of a disordered love. Sin flows out of a disordered love. Let me explain what he meant. If you think about your job or your career and you think, should we desire a good job? You're like, yes, there's nothing wrong with having a good job, right? Working is great. Or think about a family. Should I love my, my family? Should I enjoy being part of my family? Should I, should I be in that and, and enjoying it? Yes. Is it okay to desire a family? Totally. It's, it's a good thing. Family is good. Work is good. But what happens if we get the order wrong between those two? If we love our career more than our family? Well, it tears marriages apart. It leaves children in the wake of collateral damage, in the seeking of my pleasure. You see it all the time with people who seek high-paying jobs to get the career and they, they seek after it while their family crumbles. I did work experience when I was uh, in my second last year of high school uh, with a company called Arnott's. You might have heard of them, Arnott's Biscuits. They're, they're a large company. Um, I, wanted, I was thinking about being in human resource management. And so I rang them up and went, oh, look, could I, could I come along? And they actually put me for one week uh, with the head of HR for Arnott's, which was great. I get to sit in all these board meetings at this top level, and I'm like, whoa, I get to see what HR is like. And this guy, this was like, I don't know what year it was, 96. There we go. Uh, so 1996. And um, 1996, I'm sitting in this board meeting, and this guy is earning like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 a year. And I'm like, whoa, he's made it. He's like, oh, it's a pretty good lifestyle. You get to get a gym, and you get all this sort of stuff. And I said, oh, 
Um, tell, me, tell me about your families. We're chatting one day, and he's like, yeah, well, I've been divorced twice. I was like, wow. And I just saw for, for a moment, he said, the corporate life at this level, if you want it, is good, but it does come with a cost. Disordered love wreaks havoc. You see it in low-paying jobs too. When mum and dad work really hard to support the kids because we want the best for the kids. It's out of love for the kids. And so they're working day and night, driving taxis, doing whatever they can. They never see their kids. Their relationship with the kids is sacrificed because they're trying to provide a better future. That's the problem of disordered love. Work and family, they're good things, but you get them in the wrong order and the results are catastrophic. Well, the God that made everything, the God that sustains you and me, the God who is worthy of our ultimate worship, when he is relegated to second place or last place, doesn't matter which one it is, there is a huge change of allegiance. There's a wrong ordering of loves. We put anything or anyone above him. They can be good things, great things. Once they get the, the ultimate position in our life, well, it's offensive to him and life falls apart. At the end of verse four, Paul says, these people are lovers of all sorts of things rather than lovers of God. Loving God is where we should be, not self and not these other things. The view of a world just says, as long as you love others, then you're all good. We don't need God there. Why do we have to put God in that place? It seems so Harmless just to love something else the same. Why? Why is God so jealous for his love? Let me tell you why. Because he made you. Why do your parents want to be called your parents, mum and dad? Well, they want to be called that because they are. Why does God demand our worship? Because he is God. He sustains you right now. Your heart beats because he is in control of this world. Your lungs can fill with air because he allows it. We need to worship him above everything and everyone else. Putting anything else before God, not only is it wrong and disrespectful and repulsive to God, but it will also break your heart. No created thing, no, none of the other loves that we have can bear the weight of our deepest hopes and desires. How are you going at loving yourself? Is it working out for you? Are you finding that life is brilliant and it always works well and it gives you all the pleasures that are possible? Yeah, there are times that life's fun, but man, I'm not in control of squat. And things just don't go the way I want them to. As I seek, you know, pleasure from other areas, they don't hold up. Nothing else can carry the weight of your deepest hopes and desires other than the God who made you and sustained you and died for you. He then continues much more quickly with the loves that flow from the love of self rather than the love of God. Second thing he talks about is being a lover of money. Jesus says that money is really the litmus test of our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We do care about money. Money is just such a, a helpful thing in the world. This week I've been kind of looking at buildings for church, for church and thinking through a whole heap of things. And I'm just like, man... The people with money can just make heaps more money. It's so easy for them. They can come in and they can do stuff and they can move on. I'm like, ah, oh, so frustrating. And I found myself being like, man, if we just had money, it would solve all of the world's problems, right? It would give us a church building. It would see all these things happen. And there's this temptation to run to money, even out of good places. 
Look at my friends. Look at their jobs. Look at what they're earning, what they've achieved. Christian brothers and sisters. And I'm like, man, that'd be nice. People going on holidays to these great places. There's nothing wrong with holidays. But the love to have the money that brings me the pleasure, well, it's so strong. It draws us in. God has given us the privilege and the antidote to greed by, by allowing us to be generous with our money, thinking eternal things using the resources we have for the kingdom. question I've got to ask you is, where is your love? Is your love for your money? How are you going at giving to the church, the, the, the kingdom? If you're not giving, then you're loving money more than obeying God. If you're not giving to the kingdom, if you're not supporting this gospel going out with your local church, if you're a Christian, you're not loving God. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, then please, Jesus doesn't go, oh, I need your money. He's not saying, look, come, come to me so that, so that I can get more money from me. He owns everything in the world. It's all his. He allows us to partner with him and use all the resources we have so we can share in eternity with God, those who've come to know Jesus through our funds, through our time, through our energy. Don't be a lover of money. Be one who uses money to love. Number three, we can be lovers of freedom. Lovers of freedom. Where do you see that? Well, verse two, it talks about um, people who are disobedient to their parents. Like, what's that? What, 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 what's, what's that saying? We always need to obey our parents. No, no, I think it's that in this world, probably for our world today too, we need to have a love and concern for our parents. And if we're disobeying parents, we're not loving them and looking after them. Well, why aren't we doing that? I don't need to look after my parents. I want to be free. I don't want to have to go back to their place and, and look after them and care for them and treat them as family. They're kind of they cramp in my style. You know, they talk about you too and all other weird old music. And I just don't want to, I want to hear that. Lovers of freedom. You see in, in verse 3, where he talks about self-control as well. Um, they need self-control. What, what, what is that? They don't have any self-control. That means that we just love doing whatever we want, whenever we want. The, the world tells you the best way to live, to live to the full, is to have freedom wherever you want, whenever you want. We love freedom more than we love God. Number four, lovers of rights. This one got me thinking. It says in verse two, being ungrateful. What is it when you're ungrateful? When you're ungrateful for something, you're like, you're not thankful that someone gave you something or did something for you. Why aren't you thankful? Usually because you're like, so you should have given me that. That's my right. You know, you should give me all the praise because I'm awesome. Or you should have given me that gift because I'm a great friend. I'm not going to thank you. I'm not going to be grateful. We're lovers of our rights and we stand on them. We think everything is deserved. We're irreconcilable, verse 3, because, well, why should I reconcile with you? You owe something to me. That's my right and I'm going to stand on it. We love our rights more than we love our God. Number five, we are lovers of fitting in. I think this is so true for what I feel and for the culture that that we live in. Um, Verse 2, he says, these people that cause these hardships, are unholy. And when we think unholy, we just think, you know, they're not godly, something like that. But to be holy is to be different, to be set apart, to not be like those around us. These people have a love for not being different, a love for fitting in. I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm, I'm someone else. The whole reason God called Israel from nothing and made them something into a nation, God's nation, well, so that the world around would go, man, those guys are different. They live for God. What do we do? We try and fit in 
and be exactly like those around us rather than living God's way. Number six, lovers at all costs. Lovers at all costs. They're brutal, verse three. Reckless and traitors, verse four. They don't care about the cost. They just want success, position, pride, satisfaction. There's collateral damage on the way through, left in their wake. Number seven, lovers of evil, of all that is not good. If something isn't good, then it is evil. It's in rebellion against God and we, we seek after those things. Number eight, lovers of instant gratification. Instant gratification. Where do we see this? Verse four. This word reckless. Reckless doesn't just mean, you know, they get up and they smash some stuff as they walk to bed at night. They're just kind of not very good with their spatial awareness. Reckless here is saying they don't think about plans or how we're going to get places. We just make decisions and kind of then do it and, and don't think about planning. We just want it now. I want it now. I want instant gratification rather than thinking through and planning and being careful. And number nine, lovers of pleasure. Literally, it says they delight in pleasure and usually of, of a sexual nature. Let me ask this. Where is your thought life? Where are you deriving pleasure? Who are you looking at? Who are you fixing your eyes on? Do you love pleasure or gratification or things that aren't good at all costs more than you love God? How do I know? How do I work that out? Let me ask this question. What is the greatest good in your life? Experiencing God or experiencing pleasure? The answer to that determines where we are at. So Paul gives very clear instructions in verse 5. He says this, avoid those people. Avoid those people. It's pretty clear, right? Steer clear of them. Don't go near them. Don't be part of it. Now, it's on the next slide, I think. Verse 5, avoid those people. I've got me thinking, in what sense does he mean avoid? Is he saying don't go near anyone like this? You see someone who's a lover of self and you're like, whoa, get away from me, you lover of self. Like, is that... Is that what's going on? Is he saying, basically, you need to go and, and, and create like a little hippie commune with just people who are like clean and pure and just live amongst them and not live in the world? Is, is that what he's saying? Avoid them. No, it's not. Scriptures keep telling us to be in the world, but not of the world. To be a light amongst the darkness, proclaiming the truth. We're not called to pull out of the world around us. We're called to step into the world and live as different. So in what sense is he saying, avoid these people? He's not saying, avoid those who are outside the church. We immediately read this and we're like, oh, that's all people who aren't Christians, right? They all think this way. This is what that is. But no, here's the twist. He's saying these people are inside the church. He's not talking about those outside at all. He's talking about those that are in the church. Look at verse 5. He says, these people are uh, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. They're holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. What's going on? These people are in the church looking like they're godly, looking like they're living out the good Christian life, but they're denying God's power. What is it to know God's power? Well, here, the idea of knowing God's power is that the person lives a changed life. Their behavior here of these people proves that they're not what they appear to be. 
they like the visible expression of, of church, of, of Christianity. You know, it's got good morals, good ideas, a good way of life. Um, statistically, Christians live longer and have happier marriages. Just, just a fact. It's intellectually stimulating. You get to think through ancient ideas and wrestle with thoughts. And I like that. We get to discuss deep theological truths and read ancient literature and poetry. But it never impacts their heart. They've got a form of godliness, but they don't live it out. They're just head Christians rather than life Christians. Avoid people like that. Avoid being like that yourself. Of thinking, yeah, yeah, I like discussing these truths, but I'm not going to let it impact my life. Don't let this truth stick with just your head. It cannot. It must go through all of us to the way that we live. See, true Christianity is never merely proclaimed, but lives a transformed life in the light of that truth. To know God's power is to be transformed by it. To know God's power is to be transformed by it. I think that's another reason that the Christian life is hard. And it is hard. It's hard because it means change. If I'm going to let God mold and shape me, if I'm going to submit my life to under Him, if I'm going to make sure I'm being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, it's going to hurt. There are going to be bits of my life that kind of need to be molded and, and changed. I don't like change. I'm naturally like me on the throne rather than God, but I'm, ah, your way is better. That's right. Some people think that, you know, being shaped by the Spirit means like this lovely walk in the park with butterflies and flowers and warm sun. And it's just, you know, the Spirit is here. I feel so peaceful. But the Word of God says that the Spirit is like a two-edged sword. That He, that he shows us where our sinfulness and our complacency is. And He cuts away the bits of us that, that aren't right. I was like, what, what, what would being molded by the, by the Spirit kind of be like? What's another illustration for that? And, you know, it's, it's not like a gentle massage. I don't think he works like that at all. It's like, oh, that's it, Rowan. Just change a little bit more here. Yeah, that's good. You know, oh, yeah. This is so great. The spiritual life. Like, that's not what's on. I'm like, the only thing I think of, and this has never happened to me, the only thing I can think of that's kind of like would be, imagine going and getting liposuction. You go under the knife, they cut your skin. They're like, you know what? You're the wrong shape here. I'm going to get a big vacuum cleaner and suck out the fat. And so they do. They're like, and that's kind of like what's happening with the word of God. He's molding and shaping us. It's going to hurt. To know God's power is to be transformed by his word. Paul's challenging me and you tonight. Are you a skin deep Christian? Do you talk the talk but fail to walk the walk? Have these other loves other than God taken residence over and above the the love we should have for for our true and living God in your life? Now I want to say... The Christian life is not about being perfect. It's not about saying, look at me, I'm perfect now, I've arrived. You know, I'm like Jesus, pretty much me and Jesus, you know, can't tell the difference. (laughs) Lots of people think the Christian life is about being perfect. It's not. It's about trusting one who was perfect, that he died in my place, that he faced the penalty that I deserved. And then it's recognizing that I am a sinner and saying, Lord, thank you that you've forgiven me. Please help me to keep putting you first. Please help me to keep repenting and and turning back to you when I stumble and fall. It's not being perfect. It's living for the perfect one. 
A number of years ago, a friend uh, shared with me something that she'd done. Uh, she had a chat and she came to me and she said uh, what, what she'd done, it was wrong what she'd done. It was illegal. It had serious ramifications for her and her future. But the way she responded to what she had done showed that she wasn't just a skin-deep Christian. I love it. She, she, she showed that she didn't just talk the talk, but she walked the walk. She actually went back and confessed what she'd done. She could have gotten away with it. She could have gotten through and no one would have known, but she knew it wasn't right. She knew that God knew and that she would have to face him on judgment day. And it wasn't right what she'd done. And so she went back and confessed what she'd done. She confessed it to God. She confessed it to others that she had wronged. And it had serious ramifications and she took them on the chin. She didn't try to explain a way out. She didn't quibble about words. There is a forgiven sinner. There is someone who's been grasped by the power of the gospel to say, I live for someone else other than this world, than this world's blessings, and I will serve the true and living God no matter what. Did it hurt? I'm sure it hurt. I'm sure it hurt. But was she putting Jesus first even though she stumbled? Absolutely. Have you been grabbed by the power of the gospel? Have you been saved from your sin by Jesus' death and resurrection? Have you been saved to live lives for God's glory, not our own? Or is your faith just skin deep? Well, the way to make sure our faith is deeper than just our skin is to make sure we know God's truth. Make sure we know God's truth. Look at verse 6. For among them, those people doing all those things, are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women, burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions, always learning and never being able to come to a knowledge of the truth. These men that were in the church, having a form of godliness but denying its power, are kind of worming their way into households and convincing women. They had a following of these women who were saying, I think what they're saying is good. Now, I need to be very clear here. This is not saying that women are are idle. This is not a general statement. All women in the world are idle or weak-willed, as other translation puts it. And so they kind of need help, and this is not what's going on at all. He's describing here a historical situation, that these women here were being captured and caught up with the ideas of these men who had different loves. They were worming their way into households. All sorts of passions they were being led by. Are there people that are pulling you away from the truth of the gospel? I'm not saying that if you leave this church and go to another church that you're walking away from the truth of the gospel. But if you walk away from what Paul first taught, that that knowledge, that pattern of sound teaching that he's passing on through Timothy, if you walk away from Jesus' death and resurrection in your place, then you've walked away from salvation. There's a number of people on this university campus at the moment, a number of groups that are trying to draw people out and say, come, we're teaching something similar. Um, You know, there's actually another experience of the Spirit. We're all about the stuff that the Bible says. And what the Bible says is there's there's this way to know God more, to have a deeper relationship with Him. These things, they never come as kind of outright lies. They're not like, oh, you need to worship a cow. You're like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) No one does that. 
They say, no, no, there's, there's, there's more to be had of what you, you know what you've got here. There's more to be had. And so we, we go in like oh, maybe the, this knowing God's spirit kind of will make us have a, all, a whole new transformed existence, like a Christian, but like a super Christian. Or perhaps there's others saying, look, do you know what? The reason why you're not being blessed in life is because, well, there's some problems in your life with your sin and you need to come and have a bit more faith and come and understand what we're saying. You're like, okay. Bible tells me I should have faith in God. It doesn't sound totally wrong. And so you kind of, you get in there or someone else comes along and they say, you know what? You know, we're free in the gospel. The law doesn't affect us anymore. Jesus died for us and has paid the price. So we're now free to live as we want. You don't need to keep these laws. You can sleep around. It's, it's fine. The Bible's saying that. And you're like, man, that'd be fun. I reckon, you know, I'd like that. And so you kind of check it out and you dabble a bit. And before long, you've left the home hutch. You've gone for an adventure and you don't come back. These men are getting into households, breaking up families, drawing women away. I've got to ask, are you doing that? Maybe not with false teaching, but with false living. Are you doing things with the opposite sex or the same sex that you know you shouldn't be doing? Are you breaking up potential families? Are you in houses you shouldn't be. The problem with these women, though, was that they were led by these men. They were led along by their passions. Did you see that? Rather than controlling their passions, they were led along by them. The world around us says, you know, follow your passions, follow your dreams, love it, go this direction. But here it's only gotten them in trouble. And what we read of these women is this. They were always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. You ever been around someone like that? You ever been someone like that? Always learning, always asking questions, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. You hear it so often. You know, someone comes up, should I date a non-Christian? You're like, no. Why not? Well, the Bible doesn't say I shouldn't date a non-Christian. That's right, it doesn't say that because it doesn't really have an idea of dating. The Bible is quite clear, though, that you shouldn't marry a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about that. If you were to remarry, they must be of the faith. So why would you date someone to work out if you can marry them if you know you already can't? You know you can't marry them if you're not a Christian. Why? Is there something wrong with, with non-Christians? No, it's just that you share a very different future. Imagine being united closely to someone, just caring for them and loving them your whole life and knowing that unless they repent, they're going to hell. How can you work on your, your, your relationship with them and make that prime when you know that their future is, is, is at stake and you'll be spending eternity in different places. How can you say, well, I'm going to marry them anyway when the one you truly love, God, needs to be first, not them. And as soon as you say, yeah, look, I'll date you, I'll break what I should be doing here with the potential of marrying you, well, then you're saying, well, I'm going to put my love for you higher than God. And what does that say? God's not important. By those very actions, you're showing them that you're not living for God, that God doesn't matter that much to you. They matter more than God. You are leading them to hell. People come and they say, yeah, but the Bible doesn't say it. And you're like, oh, okay, the Bible says, and you go through it again, and we just don't get it. There are all sorts of issues that we can have more of this, this feeling, or there's certain, you know, we keep coming up with the same question after question after question, and people, we're always learning, always wanting to know more, always asking 150,000 people. If you are someone that doesn't hear the answer that you want and moves on to someone else and asks again and moves on to someone else and asks again, looking for the right answer, stop it. Come to the word of God. Listen to what two or three people are saying. And if they're all saying the same thing, suck it up and change. 
I'm serious. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul says that in the end, we don't have to worry too much about these people because it'd be quite obvious that they were leading cults, that they'd gone away, that their, 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 their actions will show what it's like. He talks about Janus and Jambres. Who are they? They're these two Egyptian um, magicians who opposed Moses in Exodus. You can check it out. It's not, their names aren't in Exodus, but that's who they think it is. They're the guys who are kind of when Moses was doing this, like turning the staff into a snake. They're like, guess what? We can do that too. And they did. That's some pretty cool stuff. They were like, you know, dueling with God. God can turn a staff into a snake. And they're like, so can we. And so they come along and they, they try these things and then it keeps going and they match it. They get blood in the water. But then what happens is we get to the plague of gnats in Exodus 8 and they're like, we're out. <laughs> Here's one. You know, we, we can't match this. And then they get to the boils and they're like, well, we're really out. They were false teachers saying to Pharaoh, look, we've got the same power too. We can do what this God can do. It's all the same God. You know, don't worry about him and what he's saying. We can do exactly the same stuff, the same signs that God is using, we're using. You don't need to listen to God. But it was shown in the end. Friends, there will be a day when all truths are revealed for the truth will be known to all. And these people that are leading people astray, we'll see it for what it is. It always happens. Cults break up. They do stupid things and it falls apart. But the great travesty is those that are thrown aside in their wake. Those that leave the hutch and never come back. Those that get drawn away, always asking questions, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth because they listen to false teaching within the church. Are you holding on to the truth? Are you letting the word of God shape your life? In 1860, there was a, a man by the name of Horatio Spafford. You might know his name. He wrote a song called It Is Well. And lots of kind of Christians have heard the story of this song. Um, basically, uh, he wrote this song because his whole family, except for his wife, had been killed in a shipwreck. Uh, they'd, they'd been coming, uh, crossing, crossing from the US to um, Europe to England, and another ship had hit theirs, and everyone sank, and the only person that was saved was his wife. She sends a letter back to her husband, who is back in Chicago, was about to come across, saved alone. You can imagine the grief. Why has this happened? They were going there to listen to Moody, a great Bible preacher, preach. They're thinking, we're doing this for God. We're taking our family to get away from these things that have been bad back in, in, in the US, and we're having a break, and then this happens. Why? As Spafford's on the boat, crossing the same place, he pulls out a piece of paper. And apparently, this is the exact piece of paper. Apparently, they've got a copy of the paper that he wrote. It is well on. Now, check it out. That's oh, what you know, the web says. The web sometimes lies. But hey, let me read it for you. And let me show you the strength of his conviction in holding to the truth. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day. When the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. 
You hear that and you're like, that's a guy that's holding to the truth. But here's the thing you may not know. He didn't hold on. Horatio Spafford rejected Jesus by the time he died. He and his wife moved to Jerusalem to help uh, Christians living in poverty. They lived there and started this group to help them. That group morphed and changed. They started to denounce marriage. They started all living together and it became a cult. The man who wrote those words that are so powerful and strong and true did not hold on to what he wrote on that boat that day. The strongest faith in the world is only effective if we continue to hold on to Jesus. If we continue to trust him and put him first instead of other loves. So Paul warns Timothy that to love anything or anyone more than Jesus will shipwreck your soul. And you will not endure. You will not call heaven your home. So in these last days, friends, stick the course. Keep holding to the truth of loving God first and foremost. Be aware of our tendency to have a skin-deep faith, a faith that does not transfer to godliness and action. How do we hold on? How do we make sure we keep trusting? How do we make sure that we're in Christ to the end, not running away from home, but staying there? We need to come back next week. You need to come back next week or read the next bit of the letter because that's where Paul unpacks the hope that we have and the antidote for the shipwrecked faith. Why don't we pray? Father God, we are so thankful that you speak to us. We're so thankful that you haven't left us in the dark. That you have proclaimed your truth to us and that you show us where we fail to love you as we ought. We pray tonight that you would be doing liposuction in our lives. That you would be shaping us and molding us into the likeness of your son. We pray that you would hold us trusting in Jesus to the end, not wandering, not letting false teaching get amongst us and pulling us away from the truth. We pray tonight, Lord, we will be so captured by what you've done through your son at the cross, by the work of your spirit in our lives, shaping and molding us, that we would keep trusting you the days of our life. Lord, we pray for those of us who are here tonight who perhaps have not yet put their faith in Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you'd show us how great Jesus is and what he has done, and that you would bring us from the darkness into the forgiveness and the light of putting Jesus first. Lord, we pray tonight, move us to serve you with our all. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.